You're listening to the Together in Literacy podcast, a podcast for educators, families, and advocates that connects the research of reading, dyslexia awareness, and the whole child. We're your hosts, Casey Harrison and Emily Gibbons. As two literacy dyslexia specialists, we've come together to talk about literacy, dyslexia, and the connection to the social-emotional impact that it has on our students, their families, and the educators who serve them. We welcome you to join us on this exciting and educational journey into dyslexia as we come together in literacy. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us at www.togetherinliteracy.com. Thank you for joining us today. Let's get started. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Together in Literacy podcast. I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Casey. Hi, Casey. Hi, Emily. Hi, everybody. We are season two, and we are going to get right into our topic today, a really interesting one, how to keep our eyes on the goal in our interventions. So we have some really wonderful tips for you. But first, we always like to share some feedback from um, some of our wonderful listeners. And this is, and I'm so sorry if I'm not saying this correctly, but Moho, wait, I'm sorry if I, if I did not say that correctly. Uh, but she, here she said, glad I found this podcast. As an OG specialist who works with dyslexic children, I really enjoy this podcast. The presenters provide a lot of great information and tips and suggestions that are easy to implement. Well, thank you so much. We are just so, so grateful that you have tuned in. We love when you are recognizing and recommending the podcast to others and of course leaving us ratings and reviews this is definitely a project that we're passionate about and just couldn't do it without all of your support so once again thank you and if you would like to leave us a rating and a review we would love that and certainly look forward to sharing that on a future episode so Casey is going to take it away today all right. Yes, we are very grateful for all of our listeners. Mm-hmm. So today we are going to talk about, you know, how can we keep our eyes on the goal in interventions? And we've spoken about this previously, but learning to read proficiently is not an easy task for most students without explicit systematic instruction. And in fact, the current U.S. reading scores indicate that 67% of all fourth graders are reading at basic or below basic levels. And this is really leading us to have conversations about how we teach reading, what is necessary in our classroom instruction, and how we help those struggling readers. Currently in the education field, I see bridges that are being built in hopes to connect research about how we learn to our instructional practices. And we know that beginning readers, whether they're identified with dyslexia or not, that they really need appropriate instruction in the elements of word recognition, that phonemic awareness, knowledge of phoneme graphing correspondences, and accuracy and automaticity of reading and spelling of words in text to help them break the reading code. 
one thing that I think sometimes gets overlooked or misunderstood is that this is not done in isolation, that students still need instruction in the area of linguistic comprehension, which is also referred to as language comprehension. And I know Emily and I speak a lot about how Orton-Gillingham and the work that we do is rooted in language. And so we just really want to have this understanding that, you know, both word recognition and linguistic comprehension are necessary to achieve the goal of reading. And so that leads us, you know, as practitioners and therapists and educators and parents to, to understand that there's a great deal that we need to know about teaching and learning and reading and how to implement that when it comes to our reading instruction, especially for those students who need extra support. So effective instruction in, in teaching reading, especially those foundational skills, requires considerable teacher knowledge and expertise. And so as we move through our session today, we really want to keep our eyes on that goal, the goal um, creating proficient readers and writers. Absolutely. And Casey, you brought up such a good point about things not happening in isolation. And if and as you were explaining that, in my mind, I was visualizing the ever famous Scarborough's reading rope, mm -hmm. right? Uh, there are all of those skills interwoven, wrapped through one another, and they're all happening together. And our instruction really must reflect that. That's yeah. not just one thing there. And Orton Gillingham, uh, we always say just is really just encompassing language, mm -hmm. uh, not just phonemic awareness or not just phonics. And so Casey and I do speak from the lens of, uh, or through in the shoes of interventionists, but we just also want to remind you that we were classroom teachers for many years before we transitioned into these roles. And when we think about Orton-Gillingham intervention, we know that this, is, it's not a sprint. It's not something that we can be viewing as this quick fix. It's not something that has a guaranteed timeline to success. For instance, like after 20 lessons, your child will be, you know, at this level, for instance. It is two things. It's meaningful and it's meaning-filled mm -hmm. approach, okay? The things that we do are meaningful. That means they're long-lasting. They're going to show results and it's meaning-filled in the sense that we our building language in the approach. And our students are actively involved in the process. So it's not something we're just imparting onto them. They are engaged in this process of learning to read and write with success. And that is really speaking to their intellect, which as we know, is part of what Dr. Samuel Orton and Anna Gillingham really, really was trying to hit home. Um, definitely, if you want, look back and listen in season one to our episodes on the Ortonian prescription because we uh, explain a little bit more about some of the components of the approach there. We know that for people who are trained in the approach, it may be, it may vary. You know, some people, um, depending on the length or where they've gone, but at the heart, there are some really important points that Casey and I want to make sure that we are imparting all of, to all of you today. And that really is, once again, the goal to help our students make effective progress. 
You know, we might see some quick wins on social media and those may seem helpful, but today we wanna share, we're going to share five really big considerations, five of them, and we're going to bring those to you. And we think that when we are focused on these five areas, that you're going to see some big wins when you're planning your effective intervention mm -hmm. lessons. With Horton Gillingham, you know, nothing we do is one and done. Okay, I just did a lesson on CK. Great, they've got it. No, it's all the components take careful time, planning, practice. We're going to be going into some of those things that we want to consider in our lesson execution. And that these considerations all sort of come together much like an orchestra. And we are the conductors. And what are we doing? We're making beautiful music. And that beautiful music is a successful reader and writer. Right, Casey? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I always fall back to the quote, we move as quickly as we can and as slowly as we need to. So I think, you know, whenever Emily and I are talking and we get questions, you know, people ask, well, what about, you know, this child doing this? And, and it really does depend on the child that's sitting in front of you. And I think that's important to keep in mind as well. So when I don't ever feel that I can say by X amount of lessons guaranteed that a child will be here because the children that come to us, they all have different learning profiles. And so we need to be mindful of that and considerate of that when we are making our plans and addressing their, their needs. So one of the things that we're kind of talking about here for considerations, um, as we, you know, keep our eyes on the goal for our intervention, the number one thing that Emily and I wanted to talk about was precision in language. When we are talking about precision in language, right? We want to make sure that the words that we're using, the language that we're using includes clear explanations of things. We don't want to be overly wordy. If we think about that and we remember that dyslexia in particular is a language-based learning difference. When we become very wordy, it can be very confusing. We want students to be able to internalize what is being said. And we want them to be part of that precise language. We want to pull them into saying you know, the repeating this, the phrases or the sayings that, that, so that they can explain what it is that they're learning. So that precision and language is really important for our students. Absolutely. And when we talk about using preci precision and language, so we want to be really concise we mm -hmm. want to, when we're imparting, maybe you're teaching a particular concept or even a definition that we want our students to internalize and learn and be able to verbalize and explain. Yeah. Um, we want to try and hit our points really in a very carefully organized way so that they're not overly wordy. And when Casey and I are saying, okay, well, sure, we don't want to overload and perhaps provide like really lengthy definitions or too many steps given, mm -hmm. for instance, it, thinking that we can ask our students to multitask when we really, really should not be doing that when we're working towards a goal of mastery. Right. So we want to be very careful with that. But at the same time, just because we are recommending that we use precision in language or make our explanations very tight and concise, 
that does not mean that we are lessening the content in any way. Right. And some people think, well, you know, my my child or my students here, they have they have great verbal reasoning and they have wonderful vocabulary. That's absolutely a strength. It can be a strength of many people with dyslexia. However, when we are overloading our language and our explanations with our kids, then that really, I think, becomes a little bit of a hindrance towards mm-hmm. that goal. So we want to be, once again, providing clear explanation, explanations, as Casey said, and sometimes using visuals and hand motions, maybe even a short, catchy rhyme or phrase. I know Casey just taught me one earlier. <laughs> it is great. Because some children really, you know, need sort of that kinesthetic approach to use their bodies or hand motions to help them remember what certain terminology is. So those are some things we want to keep in mind. And of course, always remember that when we are using precision in language, we are also being very, very careful with anyone who is struggling with working memory, Mm -hmm. that we're not overly taxing them with trying to remember too much wordy information. Right. And I will also piggyback on that and say, you know, when, when I meet with schools and we talk about vertical alignment, precision of language is something that I always bring up with them because we want to make sure that students, the goal is to have them transfer their learning so that they become independent. But one of the things that I see happening is that students will be taught about, you know, closed syllables or something like that in their intervention group. And that teacher's saying it one way. And then the classroom teacher's saying it a different way. A lot right. of our students are not going to make that transfer that they're talking about the same thing. So we want to make sure that we as educators also have very precise language from class to class to assist with that transfer. And here we're talking about you know, we're not dumbing this down. This is academic language that we're having our students engage in. And so it can be with, you know, like a rhyme that students have or a hand movement that's consistent across grade levels to help with that transfer of knowledge, that application of knowledge, but also you can use it then as an error correction. And we'll dive in a little bit deeper here um, into that, but there's so there's so many benefits for using precise language within your interventions and then having conversations with colleagues and parents about how, what language is being used and how to say certain things. Casey brought, brought up an excellent point. So with the precision and language that acts absolutely will support your immediate corrective feedback later on when you are providing that. And I had given an example using precision and language in uh, a YouTube video, if you want to check that out on the Literacy Nest, of how I had broken down a particular concept into sort of three talking points. That way, when we're in maybe the dictation portion of the lesson, and perhaps they're looking back and needing to check over a word that may be misspelled, then we can refer back to that same terminology, that same explanation. And that is just, once again, cycling back, spiraling back Mm -hmm. 
and just one more way that we can help commit that to their memory even more deeply and help them lead towards greater mastery application and the end goal transfer of knowledge. Yes. Okay. So that was a big one for number one. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Wow. Yeah. Like each of these could be their own episode. We always say that. Okay. So, oh my goodness. I think I need to sip a water after that one. <laughs> All right. So that was number one that we really want to keep in mind. Precision and language. Uh, feel free to take notes if you want to. Okay. <laughs> number two is... And this is really interesting because Casey and I got into some really good conversations about this when we were making this list. And that is, uh, it's sort of two. So checking our multi-sensory instruction. First of all, we want to make sure that your multi-sensory instruction is is simultaneous. That mm-hmm. means you're hitting multiple senses simultaneously at yes. the same time. And when we are talking about use, the use of multi-sensory instruction, ensuring that it's simultaneous, it just does not mean that you need to, you know, pull out all of the the toys and the shaving cream and everything, every single time. This is as simple as tapping out on the table, listening and speaking, you know, and verbalizing while a child may be writing those or tracing on a particular surface, whether that's paper, a chalkboard, a whiteboard, whatever that may be, that they are verbalizing it and they're hearing it and they're feeling it. Something as simple as that is effective simultaneous multisensory instruction. Um, but we also, it, within that consideration, we want to be mindful of scaffolds. Mm-hmm. And scaffolds are wonderful and we recommend them, obviously, you know, this is good teaching practice, but we want to be very careful that the scaffold is something that isn't always there. The scaffold is there maybe at the beginning and then released, removed over time. And why do we do that to, first of all, it's gradual release of responsibility right? But it's building them towards greater independence. So Casey and I were discussing, if we're giving a phoneme graphing map, you know, or, you know, with sound boxes on there for them to, you know, or Alcona boxes to be used every single time you are having them practice, you know, they're decoding and encoding together and not giving them just plain piece of paper. When do they have that opportunity to really practice and apply in a real situation as they would perhaps with a written task Mm -hmm. in the classroom. So that is one example we were saying that maybe sometimes is it possible that we may be overly scaffolding or not knowing when it's time to remove that and move forward. Right. And, and so if we think about, you know, current research for working memory and cognition, that really does demonstrate that the multimodal experiences with the literacy elements, that incorporating of those multisensory strategies are beneficial to students. But as Emily's saying, multisensory instruction is a scaffold. So we want to be mindful 
of how we can incorporate those strategies of multisensory instruction and tease them out because we we have different levels of multisensory instruction. So you're always going to be looking and listening, right? And writing and doing things like that, that are multisensory, but some of them are more intense. So when we have people doing the poppers and they're segmenting each sound and they're popping them or they're pushing chips, right? Those are really high level scaffolds. We want yeah. to eventually remove those so that students, again, are transferring that knowledge, you know, that simultaneous multisensory instruction. It, it is purposeful. It integrates that visual, that auditory, the kinesthetic motor for speech and for written, for writing. It, it creates those pathways to support memory and learning of both oral and written language skills. And so we need to be mindful of when we're using them, how we're using them, why we're using them. And to remember that gradual release of responsibility, we're always trying to transfer to independent application. I, I don't want to have to always be pulling out those high level scaffolds of multisensory instruction for students every single time. I want to gradually release them from moving chips, you know, if we're doing spelling or segmenting sounds to being able to either maybe tap it on their finger or write lines or just write the word, right? We have to be mindful of, of what we're doing and why we're doing it with the goal being on transferring to that independent application. Right. And I think it's the timing and the place of those scaffolds that really we want you to be considerate of. So when certainly when you're first introducing a concept and you want students to practice with those scaffolded tools, whatever they may be, sure, we're going to pull those out. And then when we get maybe to the dictation portion, okay, we're, what we're trying to do is almost create a bridge between what that scaffold was mm -hmm. to their greater application so that when they leave us, and they're in a classroom where there's a written assignment going on and they're stuck on a word, they're not going to have that bubble popper in front of them. They, if I'm working with an eighth grader, honestly, what I have said is you can discreetly tap out right. on the desk, yep. on your leg, on your arm, and no one's going to notice or see what the heck no. you're doing. Don't worry about it. Exactly. And so that is what we have to, I just, once again, think about the time and the place and, mm -hmm. how, and the length that we're using those scaffolds and when we, and knowing when, okay, how am I, how am I moving this child further towards independence? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So that was sort of like a two-part thing, right? We were talking about multi-sensory instruction, right? Mm -hmm. uh, making sure it's simultaneous, but also knowing that those tools that we incorporate and use as scaffolds, we need to think about overusing them. Do we know when to help move them towards that end goal, transfer of knowledge? Right. Right. And I think that All really right. speaks to why, you know, as educators, gosh, when I first started teaching, they were like, teaching's a craft. And, and it might've been in a different mindset or, or pedagogy that they were saying that in, but, but you know what, teaching is a craft and knowing yeah. 
when to do what that is so powerful. That is the true, you know, joy of teaching, figuring that out and how to aid students and move them, move them forward. So, you know, it, it's not, um, a simple one and done, you know, there is so much to know about each of these components. And, and for me, it's always just like, the more I learn, I, I just keep peeling back more and more layers and learning more and more. So, you know, it is not <laughs> an easy task to teach someone, especially someone who may be um, struggling and have, you know, a, a learning difference to teach them how to read, but it is a beautiful journey. So, so we've, we've talked about precision and language, multi-sensory yep. instruction, and number three, um, that we want to make sure we are considering when we are, you know, keeping our eye on the goal of our intervention, um, lessons is prioritizing review. We really want to be very mindful of what review we're bringing into our lessons, how we're choosing that review, and then thinking about how am I going to take that review to springboard or connect to my new learning that I'm teaching. That is our brains, you know, are kind of designed to create these linkages to pull up information. And so we want to provide students who want to review something and then link that to their new learning. So being really mindful and purposeful of what we are choosing for our review is very important. And understanding that, you know, within our structured literacy lessons, we have this spiral review that's always coming back. We have this cumulative review. So as Emily said at the beginning, right, we, this is not a one and done. Oh, I taught that they should know it and we move on. That's mm -hmm. not how learning work. So if we understand the science of learning, right, we understand that we need this cumulative review and we need to, as educators, be very mindful of what it is that we're choosing to review for our students to move learning forward. Right. And I think, as Casey said, with thinking very, very carefully about our review, that means asking yourself, what is this review activity going to inform me? Mm -hmm. Is it going to show me that they are moving towards mastery? There are some wonderful activities out there that can be gamified in our review. We love the use of games and we have a whole episode on that. And a lot of times the review portion of your lesson can be gamified, right? We can but what we want to be really careful about is when you are choosing that review, that it's informing you. Mm -hmm. Also, that you're a keen observer. Yeah. I am able to pull out informally information from even a simple game that I have played with a child. Mm -hmm. And that will inform me that in a future written portion of the lesson or in a future lesson that I plan, I will need to incorporate those words in there. You may have specific words that, that a student is focusing on, uh, maybe applying certain suffixes, suffixing rules, things like that. And you want to see, are they transferring that in the review portion, you know, by playing a certain game, whether you need to apply the doubling rule or not, that's going to be really informative. So once again, we want to be keen observers. We want to look at their errors yeah. and see, okay, are there patterns 
there patterns in these errors? Once again, we keep saying <laughs> what we teach is not a one and done. Um, a child will not have the opportunity to build deep mastery with just one single lesson, particularly someone with dyslexia. It's just that is the reality mm -hmm. of the people that we work with. So right. prioritize we, review and being purposeful. Yes. Right. And if we come back to understanding about, you know, the science of learning and the brain, right. And that our students need more repetition to create those neural pathways in the brain, that, that spiral review and prioritizing review is really important. Sometimes, you know, I know when I first started, I didn't always understand the importance of that. And I was like, Oh, if I ran out of time, I just kind of, that one might've fallen off the table, but knowing, you know, what I know now, that is such an important piece and being that keen observer is so important. I, in my lesson plans, I actually have a whole column for each portion of my lesson that is just for notes. Right. And I write my notes and I, that, and those are actually my most important for me, my most important part of my lesson, because it helps me plan for my next lesson but it also gives me so much information about where my student is, what they're doing well, what I need to review. And it's, it's very powerful. So, you know, being that keen observer is so important and it really does help us as we are prioritizing what we're teaching and reviewing with our students. I remember just some, you, some of my, even my earliest Orton Gillingham trainers stressing the importance mm -hmm. of really kid watching, being yes. observing, listening, watching them taking yeah. those careful notes, just so important. Do not be the person that is just imparting the knowledge and talking the whole time. It should be actually the child doing more of the talking than you <laughs> at, at certain yes. points. And that can be tricky sometimes, but that is such an important point to make. All right. We're on number four. So what we've said so far, preci precision in language, our considerations for multisensory instruction, prioritizing review. And number four, we want to be thinking very carefully about our prompting while providing our corrective mm -hmm. back. Yeah. Now, people hear the term corrective feedback. Sometimes people who may not, you know, outside of the OG realm might think like, okay, so that means when somebody, when a child does something wrong, they say, nope, do that again, or something like that. <laughs> so um, corrective feedback is informative. First of all, through careful prompting, we are guiding a child to tune into their metacognition. Mm -hmm. So, and that is really at the forefront of what our teaching is all about helping them to be more aware and reflective. That way, when they do see something, they're able to pick it up and make those corrections. We can carefully prompt and provide certain questions that lead them there when we have to uh, offer immediate corrective feedback. And I know for some people, uh, providing immediate corrective feedback might feel really new to you because... Mm -hmm. In certain approaches, like a balanced literacy approach, uh, there are times when errors were acceptable right? and you just move on. But in Orton-Gillingham, we offer immediate corrective feedback right? so that we can help that child recognize 
through the use of careful prompting that uh, this is something that we is definitely important enough to make that correction and not in a punitive way in any way at all. Right. It's in much more of a reflective format. And Casey and I really thought like, okay, we could do a whole episode on an immediate corrective <laughs> feedback for sure. And we have tons of little prompts that we could be, you know, talking about at certain points when you see a child who perhaps make a certain error and while they're reading or writing in the future, we hope to do that. But for now, we just want people to really think about how they're prompting a child when they do see something that needs to be corrected. Yeah. And I think if we come back to that immediate corrective feedback, and then we connect that with the gradual release responsibility model, where we have that I do, we do, you do, that is really where that immediate corrective feedback comes in. When you have, you are going to immediately correct a student that may mean that you come back up to the, I do portion and you model it again, or you bring them into the, we do before you release them back into the independent practice. So we have a whole episode on the gradual release of responsibility from season one, that, that may be a good listen if that's um, something that's new to you. But one of the other things for us to be mindful of and, and to, to kind of maybe reflect upon is to think about what are the cues that you're giving students for that immediate corrective feedback. Do you have nonverbal cues, right? You may be tracking with the student when they have an error, you don't move. And they, they know that that's their prompt. Oh, I didn't read that correctly. Nonverbal cue to do a a correct Uh feedback. You can have it be where you have a verbal cue. If they've forgotten something and coming back to that precise language, right? If my students are coding and they've forgotten, all I need to say at this point is a vowel and a closed. And they're like, oh, closed syllable is short. I'm going to code it with the brief. They have that precise language as a corrective feedback. So, you know, being reflective of, of what it is that we're using, what is that precise language that we're using? What are our verbal um, corrective feedback that we're going to to use with students? What's our nonverbal corrective feedback? And going through that lens of the gradual release of responsibility model. So corrective feedback is is an art form, I think. Yeah, it <laughs> is. It and and also knowing the student before you. You need to maybe modify um, your corrective feedback based on the child that's in front of you as well. So, you know, just kind of spending some time to be really mindful and reflective on what it, what, what corrective feedback you're, you, you're currently, currently using and um, where you could refine that. Definitely. And our children that we work particularly in the intervention model, in case, you know, both attest to this, uh, really are attuned to our body language Mm -hmm. (laughs) and our, and our facial expressions yeah, <laughs> and how we react, our reaction time. Mm-hmm. So thinking of the verbal verse, nonverbal reaction or response or prompt is going to be, is only going to height, not only heighten your awareness, but it's also going to just benefit you and that child sitting with you. So, so, so important. Yes, we do hope to offer um, more of an in-depth episode on that immediate corrective feedback in the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, Casey's brought this up a few times and we did this back in on episode 10, but I I keep hearing it sort of circling 
<laughs> it's circulating. And that is when I when I think about these considerations, these can be applied to all subject areas. Yeah. And the, this really is much more than the science of reading. Mm-hmm. And we are discussing and promoting the science of learning. Yes. That's where <laughs> we would love to see a little bit of a shift, a big shift in the conversation, because these are all, these are things that all learners need. Right. So if we can make that bit of a mindset shift in, in, in our language, and our discussion towards science of learning, <laughs> we truly feel that that will be beneficial across the board with the way all teachers see the way people learn best. Absolutely. And, and remembering that, you know, the current, you know, science of reading, it's really pulling research from multiple disciplines that are really looking at how we learn. So I, Emily and I have been talking about this. We really feel that that's actually more precise language to use. <laughs> the Speaking of, of precision learning. Wow. <laughs> so <laughs> you'll hear us promoting that, the science of learning. <laughs> I mean, when we're talking about explicit direct instruction, we're right, talking you know, gradual release of responsibility, like all of these things that we bring up, well, this is a science of learning. This yeah. isn't just For in areas of reading. Correct. So we're trying to um, promote opening up the conversation more broadly to encompass more than just reading instruction. Absolutely. Okay. All right, friends. So we are now on Ooh. number five, and I really feel like we've actually embedded this throughout. So, but number five is to, you know, when we are considering our planning and our goals, right, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that our interventions, our goal is to be closing the gap. We want to be closing that gap. Um, you know, we're talking about that, that reading gap and the, and the Matthew effect, right? We, we want to be closing that gap. We want to have our students have a greater application and transfer into their classwork, into their homework, into their, you know, learning across the board, right? So that they have this, the whole goal is to create independent readers and writers, right? And so we want that to be our goal. So always our learning and our teaching is coming back to how are we moving forward and how are we having that transfer occur? So that our students become independent and that is going to encompass, yes, the academics, but also that mindset and that metacognitive awareness of analyzing our own learning. What's, what's going well, what do I need to reflect upon and improve upon? So they really are interwoven and we just want to, you know, have that be our goal, right? I love my students dearly, but I want them to fly. I want them to take off and not need me anymore. Right. Yeah. I was thinking <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth. We love our students. We love the relationships that we build with them. We love watching them make progress and succeed. Yes. We want them. We want to put wind in their sails. We want mm-hmm. to see them fly. We want to see them sail off and with a greater sense of knowing how they learn, what tools they need, when to adjust those and how to build towards greater independence, which is what we do as parents and caregivers. We also do that for our students. And so once again, please let's not lose sight of that goal where 
and I know transfer of knowledge mm-hmm. is a hot topic among the reading interventionist community because it's something we're always really, really concerned about. Like we don't want it to feel like these things are happening in a vacuum and so that when they're off to on their own, maybe in the uh, typical classroom setting, that they aren't able to utilize or or reach into that toolbox and use those things. We want to see those supported and nurtured wherever they are, but we also want them to know, want students to know that, yes, you are equipped to be able to do, you know, this task because you have this or you know this. Um, So, and that, once again, it's just making sure that they have plenty of practice, all right? Our precision in language, purposeful review, multi-sensory instruction, corrective feedback, and that those are all things that are going to promote that independence. So we just hope that this conversation about these five considerations just gets you thinking Perhaps each point could be a little discussion that you have, uh, maybe with another work colleague. How are you providing those opportunities? Mm-hmm. Maybe some adjustments that have to be made. Maybe you want to open up more of a discussion about the science of learning. When you're going to have to have an episode on that. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd love to hear from you. So uh, let us know what you think of these considerations and how how yeah. things are working out for you um, in your classrooms. And of course, if you have any questions, feel free to, to reach out to us. We have a blog post that accompanies every one of our episodes. So we always provide that. Uh, usually comes out the week after the episode is published and released. So when you give it a listen, then next week you can find the blog post and we include you know, help links and and things like that there. All right. So before we wrap up, uh, Casey and I just would love to just share a few things about our own businesses. And we so appreciate your support. Uh, Casey will let you you take it away. (laughs) Okay. Well, I just wanted to add, I have a blog on the dyslexia classroom from, it was out last year, but it's called multisensory instruction moving beyond the sand tray. Um, So if you really want to take a look at that. I, I broke down the components of structured literacy and gave you examples of multisensory instruction in each of those specific areas. So that might be worth a read. I'll put the, make sure that the link is in the, the show notes. And then I currently have a couple of courses open, the color coding method to teaching sight words course. And of course, sight words is meaning all words, but it's really a mini course, a three hour mini course that details my color coding method to teaching sight words to help your students move from phonemic awareness to spelling and reading. So yeah, it's had some great feedback. So And we can find that that on, we can find that on the dyslexia classroom website, Casey. Yes, that is where you can find me. Awesome. And I would just like to put in a little plug for an amazing new membership, uh, Building Readers for Life Academy, where we have monthly featured speakers. And we're not just talking about Orton Gillingham, we're talking about uh, dyslexia 
ADHD, executive function, uh, writing, vocabulary, so, so many different topics that, you know, uh, teachers, amazing teachers like you definitely care about and want to learn more about. So I invite you to check that out. You can go to theliteracynest.com and click on courses and you will see it there. So Casey and I just so appreciate your support if you would like to check those courses out and certainly you know, send us a message if you have any questions at all, yes. perhaps whether it be you taking these the course or the membership yourself, or if you'd mm -hmm. like to get a team of people together and do it together, that, that would be amazing as well. Absolutely. All right. So coming up, we have some speakers coming up in do. the next yeah. episodes. Yeah. So stay tuned. <laughs> Looking forward to that. And yeah, so we will see you next time, but thank you so much for joining us today. And we just hope that you will share this episode and we'll see you next time. Bye everyone. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Together in Literacy podcast today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a positive review and subscribe to the podcast. Each comment means a great deal to us. And if you have any questions for us that you would like answered on the Together in Literacy podcast, please contact us at support at togetherinliteracy.com. Be sure to visit the website www.togetherinliteracy.com for show notes, downloads, and goodies. Thank you for helping us spread the word about the Together in Literacy podcast. We'll see you next time.